Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Good morning, church, and Happy New Year, everyone. Um, Today's reading is taken from um, Paul's letter to the Philippians, um, from chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. Um, And in the Pew Bibles, you can find this on page 1181, but it will also be projected behind me, one of the screens there. Uh, If you are a visitor and you do not have a Bible, Uh, You can help yourself to one of the Bibles as a gift from us, uh, from the church. Um, So now let's read Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to, be, to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in ev- any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Amen. Great, thank you, Henny. Brilliantly read. Um, Welcome to Westminster Chapel. Uh, My name is Howard. It's my privilege to lead a wonderful team at this historic church. Um, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Decade, in fact. Um, And to start this New Year, New Decade, we are doing a two-part little mini-series this Sunday and next Sunday, asking the question, is it well with your soul? Uh, A really uh, important question because we live in an age of digital distraction uh, where we're so busy we don't get time to do the things which really matter most which is to care for the inner operating system of your being your your soul this is the most important detox if you like that you could you could possibly uh, do at the start of this new year and we're going to be tackling two subjects in particular uh, greed and grief that really sicken and suffocate uh, the soul And so this week we're looking at greed. Next week we'll look at grief versus hope. And we have an amazing uh, guest speaker to come next week. His name is Ben Lindsay. um, And he's uh, just written last year, wrote a book called uh, We Need to Talk About Race. It's got an introduction by Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. Big bestseller. He's an amazing speaker. So you don't want to miss out and come next week and invite some folks along. Um, But today is greed versus contentment. Greed versus contentment. So I wonder if I was to ask you on a scale of 1 to 10, where are you at with greed? <laughs> you don't have to shout out loud. You might not want to. Um, but, but where are you at? Just to sort of benchmark yourself. Do you think you're okay? Over this Christmas period, I think I hit like a 9 and maybe even got to a 10. Um, I ate way too much. Anybody else want to admit that this morning? 
yeah, a few of us. And let's just rehearse what that feels like. There's this delicious food that is coming in, right? And it's lovely and it keeps coming and you can't resist it. And you eat more and more till you start to feel uncomfortable and incredibly bloated and frankly fat. Um, and then after the fatness kind of turns into the sense of flatulence starts to come on board, doesn't it, does it not? And those Brussels sprouts now, aka fart grenades, they're just getting ready inside to explode. And you feel like awkward, unpleasant, lethargic, you're tired. Uh, maybe like me, you get irritable and a bit grumpy because you're sort of thinking, why can't I feel like a 20-something full of energy with a six-pack? You know, the world tells me, why can't I have my Christmas dinner, my Christmas pudding, and my Christmas cake, and a mince pie, uh, all that, and eat it? Why, why can't I do that? That's what the world says, you know, and I get angry about all of that. Um, maybe you don't experience that. <laughs> maybe I'm the only one. But this, uh, this loathful stupor, to one of a better expression, that happens physically is what happens spiritually to us when we give ground to greed. And there's greed for food, but there's also greed for money. Greed for an affluent lifestyle, greed for comfort, greed for luxury. I've been reading through um, Peter Aykroyd's got a book, uh, The Biography of London. It's, it's actually massive. It's like that big doorstop book. It's going to take me a whole year to read it. But he... Um, he describes what happens when they rebuilt London Bridge. He says that they put two griffins either side of the entrance coming into from the south into, into London. And he says that the griffins they took out of classical mythology quite deliberately because a griffin guards um, gold mines and buried treasure. They wanted to protect and guard the wealth of London. And then he makes this incredible observation. He says... The deity that has presided over this place has always been money. Oh, that is the atmosphere, the culture of the city we live in. Hard not to get caught up in it. There's greed for food, there's greed for money, there's greed for sex, there's greed for power, there's greed for position, there's greed for significance, there's greed for approval and validation and people praising you. There's all these different greeds out there and they get whipped up in our culture into kind of an extreme sort of sense of frenzy by it just continually offering you more. You can buy more, you can own more, you can have more. That is the kind of strap line of our society. It doesn't matter where it comes from, it doesn't matter who gets hurt on the way, it doesn't matter the damage done to to the environment. There's more. That's the mantra. There is more and you don't have enough. And that's what 90% of us, that's the message 90% of us woke up to this morning because the first thing that we did when we woke up was look at our phone. That's what the surveys say. And we started listening to the discontentment preaching device that we have that's awakening greed within each and every one of us. Speaking a discontentment that is destructive to our soul. Greed's casualty list grows by the day. Gordon Gekko, um, he's a character from the film's Wall Street. And in the sequel to the original film, he finally comes to his senses to some sen in some senses. Um, and he says that greed and its consequences are a weapon of mass 
destruction. So how do we escape from it? How do we find that inner elusive sense of, of, of peace? How do, you, how do you find the rare jewel that is contentment? Well, I would say it's by learning from Paul. Jesus is one of Jesus' best apprentices, best followers, because he says he has learned himself the secret of contentment. Paul is a really interesting guy because he is joyful regardless of what his circumstances are like. As he's writing this first century letter, he speaks of joy and rejoicing 14 times. And that's particularly interesting because he's writing from a prison, probably in Rome. The situation's made worse because of his absence. There are kind of young upstart preachers who want to take his place. And they're preaching the gospel with selfish ambition in their hearts. And then there's all the opposition that's going on around. And he's been held back. He can't do ministry in the sense that he was used to preaching, traveling around. Because he's in prison and they're going to get the advantage because he can't counter their attack on the ministry. And he must have been exhausted after year after year after year of ministry. He could have felt like that. But I tell you, none of that took away his joy, the contentment that he is able to find. He's the kind of guy I want to learn from. (laughs) Don't you? So we're going to look today at seven secrets to contentment coming out of the life of Paul. And the first of those is a grateful heart. Paul begins, if you have a look at it, chapter 4, verse 10, by thanking this first century church in, in a place called Philippi that he's writing to saying thank you for the gift. They've sent him a gift through a man called Epaphroditus, resources that are incredibly precious and helpful to him, and he says thank you to them. The danger is often when I want to say thank you, or maybe when we do that, is that we thank people in the hope that we might get more. (laughs) And so Paul, immediately after saying thank you very much, he says, but it's okay, I've learned to be content with a lot or with with a little. It's all right. He's saying, I'm... I'm content. So he's not trying to manipulate. He's just plain and simple thankful. Gratitude destroys greed. Helps you to slow down to give thanks for what you already have that you often neglect. One of the frustrating things um, that I have as a personality trait, it's frustrating for me as maybe more so for everybody else, is that I'm really good at spotting things not working, that are broken, not in the right place, damaged. Uh, And so in a building like this, and we reckon it's got maybe a thousand light bulbs across its entire site, I'm really good at fixating in on the one light that isn't working and being a bit grumpy and frustrated about that. And I forget there are like 999 other ones that are working and that's okay and I should be thankful that we have light. And I think this is something true of the human condition. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible and the biblical story, Adam and Eve, they're there in a garden paradise where God has made hundreds of beautiful, glorious trees for their personal enjoyment. Yet they fixate on the one tree that they are not allowed to eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they get grumpy and sort of frustrated about that, neglecting and and being ungrateful for all the other hundreds of trees that are available to them. And they want something of what God has. They're envious of God himself. They want that and they're ungrateful. Greed is best friends with envy and ingratitude. And so Paul comes to combat this unholy trinity with gratitude. 
with thankfulness. By my count, 37 times in Paul's writings in the New Testament, he expresses thanksgiving. He's thankful. He's thankful. All the time he's thankful. He's thankful to God for his salvation, for his relationship with God, for the grace of God. He says, thanks be to for God for the inexpressible gift of Jesus. He's thankful as well for other people around him. He's thankful for their faith, for their growth in faith, for their sacrifice, for their service to God. Look at the start of this letter, chapter 1, verse 3. I'm so thankful to God for you. Just pause out of Paul. He's thankful. But maybe you're here and you're more like me. Like you're really good at noticing people letting you down. People not measuring up. People not delivering, not being good enough, doing things wrong. I mean, Paul, he could have done that, right? Couldn't he? He was like, it's taken you so long to send me a gift and you only sent me that and you sent it with one person, not another. That wasn't much. Come on. No. Paul is just thankful and he's looking for reasons to be thankful to God. Is this a challenge to you as you start this new year, new decade, to begin and end each day of it with gratitude? Thanksgiving to God. What would that look like for you? A grateful heart. The second thing is is radical humility. Paul wants his attitude to be the same as his saviour who he's following, Jesus Christ, God. And he writes about this in chapter 2 of this very letter. And he says that Jesus, though being in very nature God, didn't grasp hold of that, that he made himself nothing. He made himself a servant, a slave, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Paul sums up this attitude and he says it's about preferring others over yourself. It's about looking to the interests of others before and above your own. How are you doing with that? Honest heart check moment. This sense of humility, it's not about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. That's quoting someone far greater than I. Are you about reciprocity or radical service? They haven't helped me, so I'm not helping them. They haven't done enough for me. They should initiate, not me. I shouldn't do that. Are you about what's fair or being faithful? I tell you, if you're about what's faithful, then you'll find contentment in radically giving yourself in the service of others. The third thing is wise perspective. The third secret and to help illustrate this, I have actually bought in a pair of, uh, of handcuffs, um, which I'm terribly inept at using. Now, these belong to my son, just in case you had any inappropriate ideas in church. How dare you? Um, your sins may or may not be forgiven. No, I'm just teasing. I'm playing with you. They're given to us by a generous person <laughs> from within our church family. I won't out them either. I've probably already done enough. But Paul is, he's in prison and he is chained. He is chained. 
to somebody else. Now, if that was me, I would want to fight against them. There would be abrasions all over my hands, my wrists. I'd be trying to bend or maybe dislocate my thumb to try and pull my, my hand out of these handcuffs. But not Paul. He doesn't fight his circumstances. He submits to them. I would be head down, moping around, moaning and complaining. Paul is head up, trusting God, believing that there's purpose in his imprisonment. And this is what he writes. If we look in chapter 1, it's pretty quickly there. He says from verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, being in prison in chains, has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Jesus Christ. There's purpose. Awesome purpose in this is what he's saying. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. Paul is under house arrest, 24-7, chained to a member of most likely the Roman Praetorian Guard. These are the next movers and shakers for the Roman Empire in its entirety, next leaders. And he's there chained to them. And every four hours, there's a new soldier brought in. And over two years, that is 4,220 witnessing opportunities that he has given to him by God to influence an entire empire. And it says, it's become clear to the whole palace guard. And then it says, and to everyone else, the spreading through these soldiers across Rome and beyond of the good news about Jesus till we get to almost the end of the letter. And in chapter 4, verse 22, he says, somewhat cheekily, I think, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The gospel has come all the way from backwater Galilee to a prison room of house arrest to the most powerful man in the world at that time. When Paul writes in the letter to the church in Rome itself, he's saying this, God really does work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's true. It's true for me, he's saying. And it's been true all the way down, year after year, century after century. I think of the prison that John Bunyan was in, this great Puritan writer. And if it wasn't for that awful prison experience for him, we wouldn't have Pilgrim's Progress, top 10 best-selling book ever written around the world. This incredibly helpful guy, how to live the Christian life, came out of... Prison, prison was good for him. Prison was good for William Cowper as well, but it was a different kind of prison. Not a physical prison, but an emotional, mental health prison. This man battled with depression most of his life. Yet God used that prison to enable him to write some of the most amazing hymns that have ever been written. And potentially to have written the greatest line in hymn writing of all time. Behind a frowning providence, he hides 
a smiling face. Whatever prison you're in right now, or may come in this decade ahead, be still and look to see the smiling face of God. It just might be that you have reasons to rejoice, just like Paul did, that there's goodness being outworked in your suffering. The fourth secret is everything prayer. It comes from chapter 4, verses 6 to 7, where Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, everything prayer, in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, there it is again, thankful heart, Present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, which is beyond transcendent peace, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer brings us back to peace. When we cast our cares on Christ, knowing that he cares for us, it brings contentment. And this is how the early church prayed. The early church is recorded in a book called Acts in the Bible, their history. And at chapter 4, the story is that Peter and John had been arrested and ill-treated in prison. And now they are released. And they go back to their fellow church members. And what? They hold a pity party? No, it's a prayer gathering. And it's a phenomenal prayer that's recorded for us of how they pray. They pray like this. Raising their voices together. Interesting for us Brits who like to pray quietly under our breath. Raising their voices together in prayer. They say, Sovereign Lord, you created the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That is a good way to pray. Take note. It's a good way to start your prayer. This is what God is like. He is sovereign. He's in control. He made everything. He has power beyond belief. I'm coming to him. I'm coming and standing before him. And then they say, you spoke. God, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And they quote Psalm number two. They are affirming the authority of God speaking through scripture. Not just a man writing, but God himself speaking through the very Words of this precious book. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his capital A, capital O, anointed one. And then they claim the fulfillment of this. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed And then they conclude, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, they were completely in control and responsible for their own behavior. Yet you, God, were in ultimate control and authority over the whole thing. How does that work? We don't know. We are human. He is divine. But it's awesome. God, you're in control. That's how they pray. Orientation. Who God is before intercession. What we need. And then they pray 
Oh Lord, consider, consider their threats. They bring their concern, their fear, their anxieties, what worries and troubles them. God, consider their threats. We bring them before your attention. Hey, but God, we want your spirit, your power, your presence, that we might have boldness to go and tell the world how great you are and give us signs and wonders that will show them, that will affirm that what we are saying is true. And that's what happened. God answers that prayer. There is a shaking, external and internal, They are filled with the Holy Spirit and they go out with phenomenal boldness even to the point of death to declare the good news that Jesus has risen and come to save us from our sins. And we're here 2,000 years later proof that God answered that prayer. In 2020, could we pray that way? Could we bring all that worries and troubles us, makes us anxious and fearful to God and say, God, be aware of this, but Lord, we need your power. We need your peace that we might go with boldness to a lost and needy world. That's the fourth secret to true contentment. The fifth is mental focus. Mental focus in an age of distraction. I need to talk about this digital distraction because some of you have checked your phone a few times since I've been speaking. And and it's a bit rude, but I'm not going to out you. It's okay. I get it. It's a kind of plague (laughs) at this time. (laughs) Digital distractions everywhere. Great Holocaust survivor, Corrie ten Boom, she once said this, um, that if the devil can't make you bad, he will make you busy. He'll get you busy, he'll get you distracted. Let me read to you a quote from Sean Parker, a man who is formerly the president of Facebook. He said, the thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. And that means we sort of need to give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because something someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever. And that's going to get you to contribute more content and going to get you more likes and comments. It's a social validation feedback loop Exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. There are forces out there that want to keep you busy, to keep you lusting, envying, desiring stuff all the time. I want to sow discontent into your soul. Distraction is dangerous because it feeds our greeds. So Paul says, chapter 4, verse 8. He says this. Whatever. 
Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, praiseworthy, think. Think. Meditate. Stop. Slow down. And think about such things. There's a time when we must start turning off our phones. Being aware of how distracted we are. And tuning our minds in to think about God. Think about his church. Think about his creation. Through these wonderful seven headings. To focus our minds on what really matters will help us to resist becoming distracted, which is destroying us with greed, and instead will tune us in to understand how we can find true contentment. Point number six is regular practice. Regular practice. If you look in the passage um, that we have from verse 10 onwards to verse 13 of chapter 4, Paul is saying that he, he learned contentment. He says it not once but twice. It's quite significant that, that repetition, that he learned contentment. You don't just sort of show up and happen to find contentment. You're not born being able to be content. It's not some sort of ability that, that you have. You have to work at it. It requires effort, energy, discipline. <laughs> it's a lifetime really in many ways to kind of learn this secret of contentment. You can't just get it by putting in a, a book about contentment under your pillow and it'll absorb into your head. You have to get it. It's effort, energy. Okay? But that is balanced by the last point. Intimate abiding. In fact, you can't do any of the previous six that I've mentioned without this. It's a bit like New Year's resolutions. Many of them that we make, you know, we, we stop. The famous gym membership at the start of the year to lose weight that you kind of go four times and then you never go again. If we get number seven wrong here, nothing else is going to work. This is the fuel, the sustenance, the sustaining power for contentment. And Paul is saying here, I don't find contentment sort of stoically through my own strength and energy and abilities. He says, no, I can do all things through Christ, through Jesus, who strengthens me. That's the source of his strength, his power. Not his own power, but God's power working in him. Now this verse has been abused sort of lots in the past. Um, and you've got at one end, you've got the crazy end. And one end, you've got the cruel end of how this verse gets misinterpreted. So at the crazy end, you have people say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can walk on Walker. I can climb Everest because I can do anything through Christ because he gives me strength to do everything, right? Wrong. Not quite. I'll get to explain why in a minute. Or you get the cruel end of it, which you know, like some church leaders, no names being mentioned, can do to people and sort of say, uh, you can clean the toilets, you can carry my bags, you can do all my menial work because, hey, Christ will strengthen you to do all things. You can do all things through Christ uh, who strengthens you. That's sort of the, the, the crazy and the cruel. But it's not the context. The context of the verse is that Paul is saying, I can, I can find contentment whether I have, have a little or a lot. Do you see what he's saying? 
Wealth cannot corrupt me because Jesus is first, not money. Poverty can't crush me because it can't take away Jesus. It can't damage my relationship with Jesus. I tell you, he says, nothing can separate me from the love of God. His contentment is found in his relationship with Jesus and with Jesus and being known by him and in knowing him. He has everything. He's got everything. Jesus is God and he is goodness itself. And Jesus came to take the wooden timbers of the cross, judgment and destruction and death, and to transfer that wood into the life-giving tree of which he is the vine, the life giver. And he says, if you remain in me, abide, stay, in him, resist the pressures to leave him, but stay and remain in him. You'll produce much fruit. But apart from him, you can do nothing. So, prop number two social crowd experiment. I have here a dying branch. I would like us to try and bring it back to life. So, I thought, how could we do that? Well, I thought, well, maybe we could all mentally will it. You know, kind of like Darren Brown stuff. If we all look at it really hard and screw up our faces, sort of like the, the constipated look, I call it, um, and just go, mm, life, come alive. It's not working. Maybe we could shout. Could you shout? Sort of like, life, wake up, come alive. You want to do that? No, you're very reluctant to do it. <laughs> you're very reluctant to do it. It's stupid, isn't it? It's like, mm, come on. It's not going to work, is it? I mean, it's not going to work because it's dead, but also it's a branch of our Christmas tree that doesn't produce fruit. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, but it's just, why though do we go through the Christian life this way? Why do we do that? Paul says it's about abiding. It's about remaining. It's about staying close to Jesus. That's the only way you can do any of these things that I've mentioned. The secret to Paul's contentment is based on his relationship with Jesus. And he describes it in quite strong language in chapter 3 of this letter. See, Paul was a bigwig, big name, up and coming guy, great speaker, preacher in the wall of Judaism. He was, he was going to be the next kind of great one who was coming. And he was on this track to do all of that sort of stuff. And he writes about it and he says, of all of that, he says, it's Skybala. Sometimes we soften it, rubbish. Actually, he's using the equivalent of human excrement, feces. He says, that is compared to knowing Jesus. Knowing the God who died for me, who loves me, who takes away my sin, who forgives me. Paul was like many of us trying to justify ourselves, trying to prove our worth, trying to find validation by doing things. And on the road to Damascus, as Paul was set in his mind to go and prove himself, to purge Judaism from the way, the early Christians, he wanted to destroy and kill them all. God speaks to him. He sees the risen Jesus 
And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Get up, I've got a great assignment for you. This statement from God is amazing in all sorts of ways, but let me just draw out three. The first is that Jesus says, me. Paul had been destroying the church, involved in killing and stoning of of Christians and putting parents out from their homes and separating families. He was doing all of that stuff to people. But Jesus, God, saying, you're persecuting me. It's a statement about the intimacy that Jesus has with his church, with you, with believers. That if someone lays a hand on you, God feels it. There's a connection. Intimately close, near, loved. That is one and the same. That's how God cares about his his people. You're persecuting me, you're doing that to them, but it's to me. That's the first thing. The second thing is God says, Saul. God knew him by name. God knew him by name. Here's the third thing. God, Jesus says, Saul, Saul. He says his name twice. Easily missed. But the contextual significance of it in that time was that if you say a name twice, it's an expression of affection and love and warmth. So this is very strange. For for, for Saul, who becomes Paul, it's an extraordinary, crazy moment for him. It's mind-blowing. He's the guy who should should be treated badly. He should be judged. He should be killed. He should be cut off by Jesus. Yet his words to him are affection and love and warmth and kindness and invitation It's mind-blowing for Saul. It's why he says, I was the worst of sinners, yet there was forgiveness. There was forgiveness for even me. And he'd done nothing to earn it. He hadn't worked hard. He hadn't done anything in the Christian faith. He was doing the very opposite, yet there was grace, yet there was salvation, yet there was hope for him to be rescued from his sin. He never got over it. He lived in that reality. Every day, moment by moment. You find it throughout the book of Acts. He just keeps telling his story of salvation. He talks about, I want to know him. I know him, but I want to know him more. Not just in my head, but experiential heart, knowledge, close, intimate relationship. Paul was rooted and grounded in God's love for him. God did this for me. He died for me on a cross for me to take away all the wrong things I've ever done, ever will do, that I might go free, that I might be clean, that I might be holy. And through the cross, he embraces me and welcomes me in as his lost son, his returning prodigal, and he showers me with his love, blessing, and affection. Paul found everything that he was greedy for outside of Jesus supersized and given to him by grace in his relationship with Jesus. Security, significance, acceptance. Everything he ever 
wanted or hoped for. That's how he was content. You can't take that away from him. He has that forever on into eternity. And that's the invitation for each one of us. In 2020, this year, today, God is inviting you to draw closer. To stay longer. Through these six disciplines I've talked about, but all fueled through his love demonstrated to you at the cross. God is here. And right now he's calling each of you by name. Just like he did Saul. Stephen, Stephen, Mary, Mary. He's calling you, reaching out, offering you mercy, offering you grace, offering you a fresh start, Inviting you on a great adventure with him, just that Paul went on. But the only way to gain all of that is by yielding to him and saying, yes, I surrender. I submit. I'm yours, Jesus. I give you my life because you gave your life for me. That is the secret to contentment. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you came to die for us. Lord, we would ask that your love would be made manifest now in our hearts as we worship Lord, you'd help us as we approach this new year and decade to spend time with you, to draw close to you. Detox our souls, we pray, from greed and all the other vices that damage and destroy. Draw us back to you. Help us to confess. Help us to repent. Help us to turn away from all the lesser distractions of this world and to gaze upon your face. To look to the cross. To look to the empty tomb. And to rejoice. Help us to see your good purpose behind everything in our lives. Help us to pray passionately, earnestly to you for your kingdom to come. And that's what we ask, Lord. We pray your kingdom come, your rule in our hearts and in our city. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.
listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.